Good morning, church. Uh, not quite tall enough. All right. Jackie, uh, thank you for sharing with us this morning. And you know, it's not so much that I have to talk, it's that the nursery volunteers come after me, you know, if we go over. So, well, I might be too new, so they'll probably still come after Charlie, but uh, anyways. My name is Ben. I'm the assistant pastor here with the church, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. If this is your first time with the church, or if you're still a visitor here with us, we're really glad that, we're, that you're here, and I would love to meet you after service. Each week at Shady Grove, we preach from the Bible, and so you can go ahead and pull out your Bibles or your apps or whatever it is that you might use, and you can start opening to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't own a Bible, uh, please come find me after the service, and uh, I want to make sure that you leave here with a Bible in hand. That will be our church's little gift to you. And so let's take care of that here after service. Matthew 13 is where we'll be reading from. And as you're flipping there, um, I want to share with you two questions that have been on my heart as I was preparing this sermon this week. Two questions that the Lord really impressed on my heart. First question is, what do you desire most in this world? What do you desire most in this world? And the second question is, would you be willing to sacrifice that with joy for the sake of the kingdom. What do you desire most, and would you be willing to sacrifice it with joy for the kingdom of God? Now, it's difficult for us sometimes to really know what's going on in our hearts. I was wrestling with that this week. What is the Lord calling me to sacrifice? Sometimes it's hard to know what's really going down deep, going on deep down in our desires. And so here's a couple little tests that I think we can give ourselves that can help us with this. The first test is called the solitude test. Uh, Archbishop William Temple, he once asked, you know, or he said, uh, if you think of, you know, if you want to know what you love the most, what you desire the most, what your heart's treasure really is, what your God really is, just ask yourself, where does your mind go effortlessly when you're by yourself? Where does your mind wander to and fantasize about when there's no other influence going on? That's the solitude test. And the second test is the nightmare test. What would you rather jump off a bridge for than lose? You know what I mean? Like what terrifies you so much that if I had to give this up, I don't think I could live without it. Right? That's the nightmare test. So you have the solitude test and the nightmare test. Now some of you might be familiar with this book uh, by C.S. Lewis called um, The Great Divorce. It's a short little Christian allegory. You could probably finish it in one afternoon. Uh, and it tells this, now it's a fictional story, okay, it's this fictional story of this group of people on a bus ride from hell to heaven. And the story is that they get a second chance to choose heaven, to choose the kingdom of God. But the power of this story is that when these people get there, when they see the kingdom in its fullness and its beauty, they don't want it. They don't want it. They would rather live according to their deepest desires and their idols and their own pursuits than give it up for the sake of the kingdom. So you have people like uh, the man who would rather hold on to his bitterness and what allows him to have self-justification. He would rather hold on to that than give it up to enter the kingdom of God. You have the spouse who would rather control her husband or the mom who would rather control her child than give that control up to enter the kingdom of God. You have the artist who loves to be the most celebrated for his artwork, and he can't be that person in heaven. He's not going to be the one who's worshipped. He'd rather go to hell where he can still be praised for his artwork. 
Or you have the person who loves to have a pity party for himself and loves to play the victim with others, and so he can't give up his addiction to self-loathing. So he returns to hell with the rest of the people. See, Lewis's point in this story is that if we're being honest, if, if we're really being honest, if we have the kingdom laid before us, if we don't enter into it, the reason is because we simply don't desire it. We go after what we love and we seek the most. And it's our desires that prevent us from entering the kingdom of God. And so even his story leaves us with these same two questions. What do I love the most? What do I desire the most? And am I willing to give that up for the sake of the kingdom of God? Well, our passage this morning here in Matthew 13, it's a short, but it's a powerful one. It's two small parables, only a few sentences. And it leaves us with this sort of haunted, introspective search into the depths of our own hearts. What do I desire most in this world? Is it my vocation and climbing up the corporate ladder? Is it my social life? Is it a relationship? Is it control or power, lust and fantasy, money, or my pride and ego? Is it comfort? Is it the ideal family or marriage? And am I willing to give that up for the sake of the kingdom of God? Well, let's read our passage here from Matthew 13. We're starting in verse 44. Let's read our text together and then we'll jump in. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be with us this morning by your spirit to allow us to be honest with ourselves about the things that we're holding on to which prevent us from seeing your kingdom and living in your kingdom as you would have us. Lord, call us to yourself this morning, we pray with joy in Christ's name. Amen. Well, can we throw that uh, picture that was just up here uh, back up? Uh, I hope many of you know that we started a new sermon series a couple weeks ago called Stories from the King. And for the next several months, we're going to be walking through the parables of Jesus. And so the reason why we're calling it Stories from the King is because so many of the parables tell us about the kingdom of God. What kingdom living looks like. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? And so you'll be seeing this image hopefully every week to sort of remind you of this series that we're in. Well, this morning, I want to sort of help us with this series a little bit, not only with our message this morning, but also give us some material to help us think through for the weeks and the months to come in this series. So I want to answer three questions for us this morning. Three questions that I think are going to be helpful, again, not only for this text, but also in the weeks to come. And those three questions are these. Number one, why parables? Why does Jesus speak in parables? Okay? Number two, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? And finally, number three, how do I desire the kingdom? 
How do I find that desire for the kingdom of God? So why parables? What is the kingdom? And how do I desire the kingdom of God? So let's start with question one. Why parables? Well, many of you know parables, they're short stories. They're illustrations. They're metaphors. They can range from a couple sentences, as we've seen here, or they can be paragraphs in length. Now, Jesus wasn't the first teacher to use parables. Okay, he was actually using a common sort of rabbinic method or rabbinic tradition of his day. And the power in these parables is that they draw on common experiences. They draw on common characters that we can sort of all relate to. They're not highly imaginative like, or fantastical like a fable or a fairy tale, but they're grounded in reality. They allow us to relate to the characters in the story. And so in so doing... The teacher, in this case Jesus, he's able to draw us in to the point that he's trying to make. But you see, parables, they're more than that. Parables are a means that Jesus used to weed out who his true disciples really were. He used the parables to weed out who was really following him and who wasn't. Look with me just probably a page back in your Bibles to earlier in Matthew 13. Um, In Matthew 13, we're actually in a whole chapter on parables. And so at one point here in this series of parables, his disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, Lord, why are you using these parables? And so let's read the answer that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew 13, starting in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why... Do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. See, what Jesus is saying is the parables reveal who has been given the Spirit to understand the things that Jesus is saying, and who has not been given the Spirit. Who is going to turn away from him, and who is not? We often see throughout Jesus' ministry, he's surrounded by large crowds, he tells a parable, half the crowd leaves. Parables, um, you can think of it this way, parables, they're both a revelation, and they also veil something. See, revelation, uh, or a parable, they they reveal the truth, to those who are following Christ, but they also veil it. They're obscure. You have to sort of stare at it for a while to really understand what it's trying to say. They're kind of like, um, if you remember in the 80s or 90s, those 3D images that were really popular. If you remember, they were like all the squiggly lines, right, and the dots, and they were kind of like, you know, hippie colors and, um, you know, pinks and blues and all stuff, and they were a blend, and you look at it, and you're like, okay, I know there's something here on the wall, But only if I stare at it long enough will the image really pop out. You know, my dad had one in his office. It was the Statue of Liberty. So it looked like sort of this blend of squiggly lines. But if you sat there and you stared, you know, you have to sort of go cross-eyed and stare at one point, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Statue of Liberty pops out at you. Parables are kind of the same way. You know there's something there, but only those who have been given the heart to truly look and to truly find will understand the teaching 
of the parable. And so here you have our parable that we're looking at today. The crowd is surrounding Jesus, this large, large crowd that we read about at the beginning of Matthew 13. And they're excited and they're thrilled because they really believe that their Messiah has come. And so they say, King, tell us, how can we bring about your kingdom? What can we do for you to bring about your kingdom? He says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like, yes, tell us, can we elect you to the throne? Can we overthrow the Roman rulers? What can we do for you, king? Well, you see, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who, when they find it, they sacrifice all that they have so that they can have it. Come again? What was that? Give up everything? Uh, I don't know about that, Jesus. You know, um, C.S. Lewis, and I know I'm using him twice this morning, you have to forgive me, Uh, this is the last time, but C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he's talking about uh, authors, and he says, you know how you can tell a good author from a bad author? He said, a a bad author is going to tell you to be horrified, but a good author is going to make you feel horrified, you know? And I think good preaching often operates in the same way. And that's why Jesus' parables, they're so timeless. Because he doesn't just tell his followers how to feel. He doesn't tell them what to believe. He makes them feel it. I think in this case, each one of us are left feeling somewhat haunted, aren't we? Is he really saying that I have to sell everything I own to enter the kingdom? Well, it's important to remember that we're reading a parable. And parables don't always stress the details, but they're meant to make a point. And the point here is that even if the kingdom were to cost us everything, it would be a joyful sacrifice. That's what Jesus wants us to feel. He wants us to feel a longing and a desire for joy and a willingness to give up whatever we have to in order to have it. Notice that the man in the first parable, he went and he sold everything with joy. The sacrifices we make for the kingdom should be joyful ones, even if it costs us everything. And here's the net result of all of this. Those who discover the kingdom discover true joy. Remember in Luke 2, when the angels, they come and they announce Jesus' birth, what do they say? We bring news of great joy for all people. That's why at Christmas time we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. The kingdom brings joy to those who enter into it. And so, those who find the kingdom of God are those who bring joy to the world. That's the net result, an increase of joy in our world. And now you may be sitting here thinking, you know, I hear what you're saying. I hear you telling me that the kingdom of God is supposed to be a treasure and for my joy, but honestly, I don't see it that way. I like my life. I like the way I'm living it. And if that's you, I just want to say, you know what? We're really glad that you're here. And so I just want to tell you that starting next week, 
on Sunday mornings at 9.30 right here in this room, we're going to be having a class called Who is Jesus? And we're going to be talking about why Jesus is such a treasure to us, why he brings us so much joy. And I want to invite you out here to join us, 9.30. It'll be about a 10-week class, so 10 hours of your life. Come and dig with us. And maybe you, too, will find treasure hidden in a field. Well, how we really respond to this parable, how we really know how to apply this to our lives, depends a lot on what we understand the kingdom of God to be. So that takes us to our second question. What is the kingdom? Is the kingdom a physical place? Is it something that we have to prepare or that we have to make for God? Is it simply a spiritual ideal that we work toward? How do we know when the kingdom will come? I think these are questions that probably all of us have. And so I've tried to narrow down here two things that I think we all need to know about the kingdom as we move forward here in this series together. So two things for us about the kingdom. The first is that the kingdom of God is present now. The kingdom of God is present now. If we remember uh, back in Luke 4, which we read earlier in our service, you can flip there in your Bibles or turn to it in your bulletins. Luke 4 is actually Jesus reading from Isaiah 61, which we read last week in our service. And so when Jesus is reading here from Luke 4, what he's saying is, I am the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 61. And so let's just read again um, here verses maybe 18 to 21 uh, from Luke chapter 4 to see what Jesus is saying. So he's beginning by reading from Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Oh, what a moment this would have been to be in this room. And he began to say to them, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the people sitting in the synagogue would have recognized that this was from Isaiah 61, and they would have known that these were prophetic words of God's Messiah, the Savior of God's people. And so, when Jesus gets up and he reads this scroll, a few things are happening. First, Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm your Messiah. I'm the one you have been waiting for. And he's also saying the day of the Lord is here. The kingdom has arrived. Today is the day of your salvation. Now is the year of the Lord's favor. The kingdom is present now in my coming. But this is where it gets interesting. You see, there's a key line that Jesus leaves off in this prophecy. He ends by saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but in Isaiah 61, the prophecy keeps going to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the original line says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, but Jesus stops halfway through. 
He sits down after saying the year of the Lord's favor. So why doesn't he finish the rest of the line? You see, because in Jesus' first coming, the kingdom has arrived with him. But what the Jewish people of his day could not see is that the prophecy would not all be immediately fulfilled. And so what we call this when we're talking about prophecy in the kingdom, we call this the already but not yet. You may have heard this before, the already but not yet. And this is a really important concept for us when we're thinking about the kingdom and prophecy. You see, the message of the gospel has arrived. The kingdom has come and the gospel is going out to the poor and the brokenhearted and it's setting captives free from their sin. But the day of judgment is still coming. It is not yet. We are still awaiting this second coming of our king to bring that day of judgment and with him the kingdom in its fullness. And so that's why, as an example, as we read from in Mark chapter 1, At the beginning of his ministry, he's able to say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is here now. So a really good way for us to think about this, just a helpful illustration, is think of a mountain range. Now when you see a mountain range off in the distance, and um, so I've been told that like Western uh, United States folks, they don't really consider the Shenandoah a mountain range. So... um, Think of like the Rockies or or something out there from the West Coast, right? If you look at a a mountain range from a distance, now of course cognitively we know that there's a separation, but what does it look like? It kind of looks like they're all blended together, doesn't it? But as you approach the mountain range, what do you find? They're actually staggered. And oftentimes there's a valley between one set of mountains and another. This is how prophecies concerning the kingdom Work. It appeared, if we read the, the prophecies from the Old Testament, it kind of looks like a mountain range. But then as the time drew near and Jesus entered into the world, what we saw, there's actually a range. There's a first coming and a second coming. And now we live in this valley of the already not yet, where the kingdom has come, but it is not yet here in its fullness. The heavens have been torn asunder and the glory of the kingdom is breaking through into this present age and we see glimpses of this kingdom wherever the Spirit of God is at work. Whether that's bringing dead hearts back to life through faith or whether that's producing good fruit in our lives through our sanctification or wherever we see Christians at work in this world. And I hope you can see why this is so important. Because if you understand this, if you understand that the kingdom of God is present now, and that it has broken through with power into this present age, then you will come to see just how empowered God's people truly are in this world. You will come to see that wherever we find ourselves, whether it's in our home or our workplace or our neighborhoods, that is where the darkness of this world is receding and the kingdom of heaven is advancing. That is where light and love is pushing out darkness and hate. And so our homes, our desks, our cars, our favorite coffee shops, our restaurants, they're all places where God is at work bringing his kingdom to bear in this world. You and I have the privilege of being a part of that. So let's come back to our text. 
if we come to understand this parable, what it's really saying to us, we will see that Jesus is saying that someone who truly discovers the kingdom of God is someone who is willing to abandon all self-interest and selfish ambition for the sake of something far greater. And that means that every place we find ourselves in this world, our vocations, our families, our neighborhoods, that is a place where we can give up our wants and our desires for the sake of seeing the kingdom of God advance. See, life would be far too easy. The Christian life would be far too simple if the message of this parable was go sell everything you own and go live off as a hermit missionary somewhere and retreat from the world. Sometimes I think we preach this text in that way. That'd be far too easy. And besides, the, uh, the Catholic monks, they tried that for centuries and it backfired. You want to know why? Because the call of the kingdom is not to retreat from the world to establish it. The call of the kingdom is to go forth into the world, make disciples and see the kingdom of God come to bear on every aspect of our lives. See, the kingdom of God is the dominion of God. It is the rule and the reign of God in this world. And this is the second thing I want us to see about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is by God and for God. And so when we read of the kingdom of God in Scripture, what we need to think of is the idea of the dominion of God, of His rule over all of the cosmos. It is where righteousness and peace and light and love and goodness prevails because it is the place where God is king. And it's this very fact that the kingdom of God, the dominion of God has come with power into this very age that wakes us up from our slumber. And it causes us to be alert and to live a life of action. For it's this very coming of the dominion of God into this present age which set the angels into motion. It filled the demons and the devils in this world with alarm. Is it any wonder that when we read the Gospels, it seems like the whole world was demon-possessed? It's because all of hell had been summoned to come and try and overthrow the king. Of course, to no avail shouldn't be difficult for us to see why this is so valuable for us. If we know that the kingdom of God is for our joy, and if we know that it's the all-powerful and all-wise and very good God who is at work ruling over all things, then everything must be working for our good no matter how painful. And in the end, we know that God will triumph over all evil and pain. And so we find his kingdom to be a treasure. The coming of the dominion of God throws this world into a crisis. That is why the force of Jesus' preaching is so strong. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come with power and energy and glory. The coming of the dominion of God confronts us with the necessity of making life-shattering decisions that will completely uproot our own desires and pursuits for the sake of His glory. You see, the person who has not found the kingdom of God will ask themselves, what are the minimum amounts I can sacrifice 
in order to be in the kingdom? What are the minimal changes I can make to my life to consider myself safe? This is not a person who is motivated by the beauties of Christ and his kingdom, but they are instead motivated by the fear of consequences. And such a person has not yet found the kingdom. True kingdom citizens are those who recognize that God's kingdom is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing whatever it takes to be its citizens. And so for some, that may mean giving up a promotion and living more modestly so that they can spend more time in their homes and in their communities. But for others, it might mean taking the promotion so they can bring more kingdom influence into the company. For some, that means uprooting their whole lives to become missionaries overseas. And for others, that means forming intentional friendships with other parents on the soccer team so that they can share the hope of the kingdom of God in their community. You see, this is where the beautiful mess of kingdom living comes to bear on each of our lives in a different way. The call for each of us this morning is to take intentional time out of our lives to thoughtfully process what is the Lord calling me to sacrifice? What is the Lord calling me to change for the sake of his kingdom? That brings us to the final question. How do I find this desire for the kingdom? I read this parable and I see what Jesus is saying, but how do I find this desire? How do I get rid of my desires to desire something greater? Have you ever met someone whose life or whose charisma or their character or their skills or their talents they just so captivated you that you couldn't help but say, I don't know what they have, but I want it. I want to be like them. Maybe that was a mentor or an older sibling or, or someone who got you into the field that you're working in right now. You become so captivated by who they are. This has happened a lot for me, especially since becoming a Christian. And then uh, it happened a lot when I first um, entered the seminary, getting to know some of the professors. And I just remember the first professor I met um, and really formed a relationship with was uh, Dr. Howard Griffith. Some of you may know him. Uh, he's a professor at RTS, and uh, he's also an elder in our presbytery. And I just remember the first time I met him, I was so captivated by his wisdom and his humility and his intellect. And the more I got to know him, I found his love for the Lord and his love for the church to be so dear. And I just said to myself, I don't know what this guy has. I don't know how he got here, but I must have it. I want to be like him. See, the kingdom of God, it works much in the same way. When you see Jesus, who dwelled in perfect unity and perfect harmony, in heaven with God, Father, Holy Spirit, triune God in perfect unity in the kingdom. And you see this Jesus who willingly set all that aside to die on the cross for our sins. He set all that aside because His people are His treasure. 
when you see that He gave up everything and bought you with the price of His own blood, that's going to do something to you. See, they're going to make you say, I don't know what kind of love that is, but I must have it. I must be a part of this king's kingdom. Or it's going to make you say, nah. You'll feel a cold indifference, perhaps even a hostility to the very thought of having to sacrifice something for the kingdom of God. There is no neutral. There is no third option. There are two roads, as Pastor Charlie reminded us a couple weeks ago. Now listen, I know that some of you are probably here today and you're maybe feeling a little bit discouraged by this passage. You're trying to follow Christ genuinely, but you don't feel like you've had this desire to pursue the kingdom of God for some time. And listen, I understand. Believe me, I understand. But let me share something with you that I've learned since coming to this church only a few weeks ago. Well, let me actually back up for a second. You know, uh, when I was being examined for this role here with the church back in the spring, uh, I had went to Dr. Griffith, who's good friends with Charlie, uh, who I just mentioned, you know, previously at RTS, and I said, Dr. Griffith, what do you know about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church? And he said, Ben, let me tell you, this is one of the coolest churches that I know about. And I said, why? Dr. Griffith, why do you say that? And he said, the people. The people at that church are so faithful to the Lord. And I can tell you that's something that I've come to see in just in my last three weeks here. I don't know if I've ever met a group of people who has remained so faithful through so much. Some of the stories I've heard that have happened, the great sorrow and personal tragedy in your lives, and you're still here. And you still delight in the kingdom, and you're still following after Christ with all that you have, even if sometimes it feels as if the spark is fading. I have to tell you, this is an amazing thing for me to witness. And so, if you're here this morning, if you're feeling discouraged, I can tell you this. You can turn to the person to the right or to the left of you, and they're going to be a source of encouragement for you. They're going to help you dig. And as we dig together, I know that we will be able to grow in joy and gladness together in our Lord. How do I know that? Because the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he covered it up. And then he went and sold all that he had with joy so that he could have that field. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our treasure. Lord Jesus, you are our joy. We ask that by your Spirit, we would leave here with a renewed sense of the treasure that we have in the kingdom of God. 
Pray that you would awaken hearts to discover, perhaps for the first time, what this treasure truly is in you. Forgiveness of sins, freedom, wisdom, satisfaction, and pleasures forevermore. Be with us, Lord. Help us to see what it is you are calling us to in this world. Help us see to see how we can sacrifice our small little plans for the sake of your kingdom vision for this world. Be with us as we go into this week to examine our lives and to see the kingdom come to bear wherever we are in this world until our Lord and Savior, Jesus, comes again and brings your kingdom in its fullness. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.